Let me have you turn to Hosea, chapter 14, and we'll look at these first nine verses again. I'm going to I'm going to give you this morning what uh, are the three R's of the Christian life. I'm just going to suggest to you that that what you find in this last chapter of Hosea is actually, although I hate to use this kind of language because we are so program and results oriented in this culture of ours, uh, what I'm going to give you nevertheless is what from the prophet Hosea is a kind of a blueprint for how the Christian life is to be lived. And here are the three R's. Repentance. Repentance. And No, no. Repentance, restoration, and refreshment. Repentance, restoration, and refreshment. So having that little introduction, let me have you just uh, follow along with me as I read Hosea 14, verses 1 through 9. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord and say to him, Take away all iniquity, accept what is good. And we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses. And we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. But in you... The orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, Let him know them, for the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors stumble in them. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this word. Thank you for uh, giving it to us. We, We pray again for your spirit. We ask you that you'd open our eyes, that you'd open our hearts, that you'd give us understanding. Uh, But, Lord, we we need so much more than just understanding. We need grace and mercy and help to live this way. Lord, you know us. You know that we don't want to do it this way. But you tell us in this last verse that the wise and discerning person will understand the ways of the Lord and will walk in them. So, God, give us grace and help certainly to understand, but then having understood to live after this pattern, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. 
So three R's, beginning with repentance, which is what the word return in verse 1 means, and then it appears later in verse 7. It has to do with repentance, with turning and returning. That's, that's what it is. Now, I've, I've given you the first of the R words, but I just I want to make this point as we get into this. I just want to observe how difficult it is to live in this world as a Christian. I mean, really to live in this world as a Christian. It's always been hard for Christians to live in this world. It's always been hard because Christianity is so fundamentally counter the way of the world at every point, at every point. And we can say that. We can look at it and we can say, well, you know, of course. I mean, everybody understands that Christianity and and the world just, they don't get along with each other. And when you see them getting along with each other, that's a time to get nervous. That's a time when you see the church, when you see the gospel, when you see Christianity getting along well with the world, that's a time to get nervous because they are fundamentally incompatible. But here's the deal. Here's the thing. This idea of repentance isn't only something the world finds difficult to swallow. I find it difficult to swallow. And I find it particularly difficult to swallow and deal with in our particular historical and cultural moment. And here's why. Because our historical and cultural moment is all about being strong. It's all about being strong. It's all about being right. It's all about doing it. It's all about getting it. It's all about being the best that you can be. United States Army. Okay? $300 million. You know what that number refers to? Anybody watch the Olympics this time? $300 million is what they spent to put on the opening, the opening extravaganza at the Olympics in Beijing. Now, who's got the next Olympic Games? You know, it, it's always got to be better, doesn't it? It's always got to be one level above what went before. Who's got the next Olympics? million is 10 times more than what they spent in Athens. So do the math. To keep up, you got to spend $3 billion at the next Olympics. I mean, it's nuts, right? Michael Phelps, stud, won his first, seven to go. Who finished second? And what happens if he doesn't do it? What happens if he only gets seven or six or five or four or three? You understand what I'm saying? It's all about doing it better and being stronger and being right and being at the top of your game. It's all about being the best that you can be. And I'm telling you, this is an insidious thing And it has crept into the fabric of our lives, and it has crept into the fabric of the life of the church. I mentioned to you last week one of the speakers who was with us at this little conference that Barb and I participated in out in in Wyoming in July. He shared with us that growing up, he learned the secret to life. Right? 
do the least amount of wrong and the greatest amount of good over the longest period of time, and that makes you a successful person. Least amount of wrong, greatest amount of right or of good over the longest period of time, and that makes you a successful person. And then he says, I became a Christian. And what is it to be a successful Christian? Do the least amount of wrong and the greatest amount of right over the longest period of time, and you get the Sunday school pin. You get the badge. And then he went to seminary. And then he went to seminary. Ha! Ah! Became a Christian. Then he went to seminary. And what do they teach you in seminary? Do the least amount of wrong and the greatest amount of good over the longest period of time, expressed in a particular way. Get all the stuff crammed into your cranium so that you can satisfy somebody who set a standard up. You know, it's this whole deal. The least amount of wrong, the greatest amount of good over the longest period of time, and you get the badge. And then he became a pastor. And what do you learn in the pastorate? Do the least amount of bad, the greatest amount of good over the longest period of time, and you be good. You be good. They ask you to go speak places. They ask you to write books. And then you get celebrated for doing the least amount of wrong and the greatest amount of good over the longest period of time. And one day this guy asked his wife this question. Don't ask your wives this question, guys. Have I mentioned this to you? He asked his wife, what is it like to be married to me? And she said, let me get back to you. And six months later, she said, do you remember that question you asked me six months ago? What is it like to be married to you? Here's my answer. Here's my answer. I can't divorce you because I don't have grounds, and I can't kill you because it's against the law of God. But if you were a dead man, I'd be a happy woman. Least amount of bad, greatest amount of good over the longest period of time. And you become a spiritual stud muffin who's got, you, you, got, you go speak at conferences, you get a big church. Everybody applauds, everybody celebrates, and your wife says, if you were a dead man, I'd be a happy woman. I'm telling you, it's insidious, and it's woven deep into the fabric of our souls, and it's not the way you live the Christian life. It's not. The way you live the Christian life, according to God, through the prophet Hosea, begins with this first R word, and it's the hardest of all of them. Everybody wants the restoration, and everybody wants the refreshment, and nobody, nobody wants the repentance. Nobody wants to do the very, very hard, hard Thing of returning to the Lord. Okay, now, look, you know, this is, I have to, t- I have to confess to you, this is hard stuff to preach about. It's very hard stuff to preach about. I love some of the imagery that you see, and I, I want to begin with this as we talk about these R's, okay? 
I love some of the imagery that you see, for example, in the Episcopal Church. When, when an Episcopal service begins, somebody leads that service with a cross. What's the significance of that? The significance is that you come into worship under the cross. We preach about repentance this week, having preached about the wrath of God being turned away from us and turned upon another last week. Don't lose sight of last week. To talk about repentance is not to talk about beating people up. It's to talk about the pathway to life. Real life. And you can't get there apart from repentance. You just can't. Now, what is repentance? Well, we've said it's returning or it's turning. It's turning back. That's what it is. It's turning from one thing, turning around and returning to another. What is Israel to turn from? Well, this is what we've been talking about. She's to turn from idolatry. Remember, that's one of the themes of this book. There are these two sort of themes, the great and relentless love of God and then the sort of equally relentless idolatry of Israel. She keeps turning away from the Lord and turning to idols. So what is idolatry? And I I know this is rehashing some previous ground, but, but here's a definition for idolatry. Just write it down and think about it. It has enormous practical implications for us. Think about it. What is idolatry? Idolatry is trusting anything other than God to do for you what God alone can do. We, you know, we think of idolatry as chunks of wood or stone or precious metal or something, you know, little carved images, little manufacturing. No, that's not what idolatry is. Idolatry has to do with trust. Idolatry is trusting anything other than God to do for you what God alone can do. As I said last week, idolatry is trusting what can't save you, and it is loving what can't love you back. I said it last week, and we said it the week before. Idolatry ultimately is about trust. It's about faith. It's about putting your life into the hands of something, anything other than God. Anything, whether good or bad. Good things can become idols. What was Israel trusting? You get a succinct, sort of abbreviated summary review of what what Israel was trusting in verse 3. She was trusting Assyria. Assyria. You know, when real repentance comes to Israel, Israel will say, Assyria can't save us. We're not going to trust Assyria anymore because Assyria can't save us. She was trusting Assyria. That is, she was trusting earthly powers. She was trusting earthly kingdoms. She was trusting things like presidents and political processes. Now, those things are good. But remember 2000, eight short years ago, when I was still in my 40s. Some of you were still in your 50s. Some of you were still in your 60s. Some of you were still in your 70s. Remember eight short years ago? Remember that gap between election day 
Tuesday, November the 7th, I think it was, that gap, that seemingly interminable number of days when we didn't know who our next president was going to be? I, can, I think I've shared this with you. Maybe not. I, see, I'm getting, I don't remember what I've told you and what I haven't. But I remember overhearing conversations between members of our congregation up in Orlando. And, and I remember so very vividly being stunned, being stunned at the fear, the anxiety, the depression, at the prospect that candidate so-and-so might be our next president. As though if candidate so-and-so were actually our next president, he would have been enthroned as king of the universe and Jesus would have been dethroned. And I think to myself, what am I really trusting at the end of the day? Look, these things matter. They matter. I don't minimize the fact that they matter. But you have to be so careful here. What do you trust? A candidate? A political process? A certain outcome? Particular economic conditions? What has Israel been trusting? Verse 3. They've been trusting Assyria. They've been trusting military strength. Riding horses. That's a symbol of military strength. How we can, we can defend ourselves. We're, we're strong. You know what that extravaganza was about on whatever night it was, Thursday or Friday night, Friday night, that $300 million extravaganza? I don't know this for sure, but I'm reading between the lines. That wasn't about pomp and beauty, and, and it wasn't about aesthetic stuff and, and dancing and all of this color and pageantry. I'll tell you what it was. It was a statement. It was a statement. This is a nation of 1.4 billion people, and we are on the world stage. And you better pay attention to us. What are we trusting? What are we trusting? Israel was trusting Assyria. Israel was trusting her own horses, her own might, her own strength, making alliances and allegiances at this horizontal human level. And all of that stuff periodically has to be done. And I don't despise the political process and all of the things that people try to do to create security. But at the end of the day, what am I trusting? What am I trusting? And you go back through Hosea and you remember that Israel was not only trusting Assyria, not only trusting her military strength, she was trusting, she was trusting things that she had made. Verse 3 again, the day will come when we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. To the work of our hands. What work of our hands? Her religious practices, her sacrifices, and all of that stuff that she was doing to, to try to appease God, to try to placate God, to, to try to win his approval. We read it in the psalm this morning, Psalm 51. God takes no delight in religious practices. God takes no delight in sacrifices. 
God takes no delight in heartless orthodoxy. God takes no delight in heartless moralisms. God takes no delight in these things that we manufacture with our hands. You know, there are two places where God dwells. Isaiah 55, 17. Isaiah 57, 15. I am the high and holy one who inhabit eternity. And I dwell in the high and holy place and with whom? With him who is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the contrite. God's not impressed with these things that Israel had done, these things that Israel was trusting. She was not only trusting her religious practices, there were those in Israel who were entrusting themselves to their pleasures Their pleasures became a God to them. You remember what we said last week? The blessings of God became a God for Israel. God had blessed Israel and she was enjoying it and delighting in it. But the blessing of God had become a God for Israel. And even good pleasures had become idols. Their riches their wealth, their houses, their couches, all of those things that we saw in Amos. These things, all of these things, had become idols for Israel. So what is idolatry and what is Israel being summoned to turn away from? Idolatry is trusting anything other than God to do for you what God alone can do. Idolatry is trusting what can't save you and loving what can't love you back. I think there are two basic and deep motivations at the core of our existence as human beings, the desire to be safe and the desire to be happy. The desire to be safe and the desire to be happy. And those two core motivations deep in the soul of every person are there because God put them there. And God put them there as a kind of a switch that gets flipped. And it never shuts off. And when the switch is flipped and the engine starts motoring, it sets you on a path, a course to find a place of security and a place of happiness. And that place, the only place, is God himself. God alone, who can keep you safe. God alone, who can satisfy the deep longings of every human heart. So I ask myself this as a Christian. I ask myself this as a professing Christian and minister of the gospel. What am I trusting? At any moment of every day, we have a tendency to get up on Monday morning and say, this week, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to do better, I'm going to be stronger. And it's the wrong first thing. The right first thing, when I get up on Monday morning, is to ask myself the question, really and truly, what am I trusting? What am I trusting Beneath the surface of things, beneath the appearances, really and truly, 
What am I trusting? And the first word of the gospel, the first R of the Christian life, is to stare those things squarely in the face and not respond to them by saying, I'm going to do better, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to be stronger this week. I'm going to slay this dragon, I'm going to beat this beast, I'm going to beat it down, I'm going to kill it, I'm going to pour acid on it, I'm going to do whatever it is I have to do. That is not the first thing to say. As I look at these things that have captured my heart, these things that I trust, repentance, verse 2, means going to the Lord and taking with me words. Words. Take words, God says through Hosea. Take words with you and cry out to him. Say to him, take away, take away all of my iniquity. Take away every desire that is contrary to you. Take away every idol that only destroys my heart. Take away iniquity and accept what is good And the way the last part of that second verse really should be rendered, and we will offer sacrifices with lips that will praise you. That's what's being inferred by that metaphor at the end of verse 2. When I get up tomorrow morning, I ask myself, what am I trusting? And I go to God, I return to God, and I take with me words And I say, forgive me and receive me graciously. Help me and save me. And you see why Christianity is so hard. It's so hard because it begins with weakness. It begins with dependence. It begins with an acknowledgement that I am a mess. I am a disordered, chaotic mass of darkness. And so where does it go from there? It goes to this wonderful place. And you don't get to the second place apart from the first place. I hate to say this. But it's not about trying harder. It's not about being stronger. It's not about being smarter. It's not about all of that stuff. It is about humbling myself before Almighty God, turning away from the things that have captured my heart, the things that I believe can save me, the things that I believe will keep me happy and secure, turning away from them, returning to the Lord, and saying to the Lord again, all in light of the cross and the finished work of cross, the cross, always understanding that the wrath of God has been turned away and saying to God, take me back, take me back, take me back. And then comes this second great word. It is the word restoration. Look at verse 4. I will heal their apostasy. That's what it is in the ESV. It's waywardness in the NIV, but I love apostasy because apostasy is a stronger word. It's a better word. And for those of us in this room who tend to be 
brainiacs and think of apostasy in terms of a departure from the propositional content of historic orthodoxy. For Hosea, apostasy is departure from the Lord. And he says, I will heal their apostasy and I will love them freely. I will restore them. And then look at the imagery that is used. Listen to the language and look at the imagery that is used to describe this restoration. I will be like the dew to Israel. And he will blossom like the lily. He will take root like the trees of Lebanon. You know these trees of Lebanon, the cedars of Lebanon were these hardwood trees, these much desired trees that had sunk their roots deeply into the soil and sucked the nutrients out of the soil so that they became strong and tall and straight, depending upon something other than themselves for their straightness, for their strength, for their height, for their desirability. Don't you love that image? They will sink their roots deep into the soil. In verse 8 or verse 6, their roots will spread out and they will be beautiful like the olive and fragrant like Lebanon. And they will return and they will dwell beneath my protective covering, my shadow, and they will flourish like the grain. You know what's great about grain? You put one seed in the ground and the one seed produces countless seeds. That's how the restored flourish. So what's this imagery that we're seeing in these verses? It's the imagery of recreation. That's what it is. It's the imagery of recreation from darkness and chaos, from emptiness. Does this sound familiar? Genesis 1, the beginning of the creation. What does God do through those days of creation? He produces a thing of incalculable beauty and loveliness and intricacy, harmony. Did you all see the rainbow last weekend? After the rainstorm, we, we went, it was Saturday, we went down to the beach. And the rainbow stretched across the whole of the sky. One end in the water and the other end in the water. And it was just phenomenally spectacular. And you think, what artistry? What beauty? What is God saying through Hosea? Those who repent, those who are restored are those who become recreated, fashioned, shaped out of the chaos, the darkness, the confusion of their idolatry and foolishness and all of the rest. By the grace and mercy of God, they move in the direction of something spectacularly beautiful. They are like the garden, flourishing as the blessing of God. So what's the language? It's the language of recreation. If any man is in Christ, new creation, a new thing is happening. 
And then what comes with recreation is refreshment. And that's verse 8. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. There's a great contrast in this verse between idols and the living God. Idols are really remarkable things. Let me give you assignments for this week, okay? Isaiah 44, verses 9 and following, which is a passage describing an artisan who takes a block of wood and fashions the block of wood into an idol. And then he sweeps up the chips that have fallen away from the art from this idol, the leftover wood, and he puts it in his fire and he cooks his breakfast over it. And after he's had breakfast, he falls down before the idol to worship the idol for giving him his breakfast. Or read 1 Samuel 5, the story of Dagon in his temple in the presence of the ark. And Dagon, this carved statue of wood, has a balance problem. He keeps falling over. And the priests who worship him have to go into the temple and put him back up on his feet again. How come? Because he can't do it for himself. He's got a balance problem he can't correct. You see what it is? He's lifeless. He's deaf. He's sightless. He's powerless. There is no life in him. For 1 Kings 18, Elijah and the Baal prophets, cry out to your God, so Baal prophets, cry more loudly. Perhaps he is asleep. Or on vacation. It's all of that imagery that God certainly has in mind as he calls out to Ephraim, to Israel, to his people and says, what do I have to do with idols? Don't you see? They're powerless. They're sightless. They're helpless. They fall over and somebody else has to stand them up. But I, I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. It's a mixed metaphor. And evergreen is what? (laughs) Evergreen. Always green, a symbol of life. Never dying, never going through the seasonal changes of dropping leaves and appearing to be dead and then having to be resurrected. No, evergreen, always green, always life-giving. But what isn't true of an evergreen? It doesn't bear fruit that you can eat. (laughs) This one does. This one bears fruit that you can eat. It is not lifeless and it is not fruitless. Turn to me, O Israel. Return to me. Be restored and be refreshed. And then there is finally this reminder. The one who is wise the one who is discerning will understand that this is the way of the Lord. Repentance, restoration, and refreshment that comes from God himself. Let's pray together. Lord, please help us 
uh, please help us. This is such a hard, hard thing for us to do. But help us to do it under the cross, because of the cross, knowing that your wrath has turned away from us. Give us grace to be brutally honest as we look at those things we trust, those things we believe will keep us safe, those things we believe will give us joy. Help us to turn away from them and return to you and entrust ourselves to you that we might know deep, deep refreshment from you, the fountain of living waters who says to us, I am the bread of life. He who believes in me will never be hungry. He who comes to me will never be thirsty. Lord Jesus, give us grace to turn to you, the fountain of living water, we pray. And we ask this in your name. Amen.